Progress City Radio Hour. I am Michael Crawford, and with me as always is Jeff Crawford. How are things, Jeff? Things are great. Excited to be here. Yeah, always. Uh, Today, we are super excited to unveil our newest innovation in the field of podcast entertainment, the Progress City Town Hall. Every month or so, we're going to try and interview some of the people who have helped contribute to the Disney legacy in some form or another. And today, we're really starting off with the doozy, uh, Mr. Frank Stanek. Frank was very generous with his time with us, and he is quite the lengthy career at Disney. It was just such a pleasure to be a witness to it. Yeah, absolutely. This was really exciting. He's had an incredible career starting off nearly 60 years ago as a young man flipping pancakes at Disneyland. And in his 25 years at Disney, he rose to the level of corporate vice president of research and planning. And along the way, he influenced projects like Mineral King, Walt Disney World, Epcot City, and Epcot Center. And he recommended Japan as the site of Disney's first overseas park and led the deal-making between Disney and the Oriental Land Company. That resulted in Tokyo Disneyland, which was a project whose development he also led. Uh, Jeff, Frank really had his hand at everything. Yes, he did. And it's just a time period that... The Disney company changes. I mean, obviously, Walt and Roy pass away during this time, and it's kind of the first reset of the major reset of the Walt Disney Company. And he goes on to even work for Eisner and Wells. So it's just an amazing time capsule of so many projects we're interested in and an interesting, you know, witness to the culture changes that happen. Definitely, definitely. And I mean, we talked to him for a long time, but I could have listened to him talk way longer uh he's a guy i wish would really write a book because as you said he saw all the key eras of the company and really how things changed and was really involved in you know a lot of the planning a thought before projects took off he was you know part of the feasibility and so he got to see a lot of the the sausage being made in a way that other people might not too So it's really interesting. As I said, he worked for Disney for 25 years. And after leaving Disney, Frank advised on a number of projects in Asia and beyond. He was the president of international business development for Universal. And he paved the way for their Japanese park. His list of memberships and appointments and honors is too long to list here. But he notably was the 2013 recipient of the Thea Buzz Price Award, recognizing a lifetime of distinguished achievements. In the words of Disney legend Marty Sklar, perhaps no one has had more impact on the two biggest players in our business, Disney and Universal, than Frank Stanek has had, especially in the growth and development of the industry and the international marketplace. He was a key to creating the background, research, and analysis that we all used at Disney to make all kinds of development decisions. And so, without further ado, we are thrilled to welcome Mr. Frank Stanek. Frank, thanks for joining us. Happy to be speaking with you today. How are things out on the vineyard? Things are out on the vineyard are doing well. The weather's kind of warm again today, so the grapes are happy. Well, that's <laughs> the good. That's about good. burned off, so they're going to be they're going to be fine. Well, that's great. Uh, so uh, you've had a long career at Disney and beyond, uh, but you first arrived at Disneyland working for one of the park's lessees, 
And I just wondered if you could tell us some of your memories of what it was like to work in the park in those days. Okay, sure. Uh, well, of course, I was uh, still going to school and living with my folks, and they had moved out from Connecticut to California. My dad was transferred in his job, and we bought a home in uh, Anaheim the first six months we were there. And since I had always worked my way through high school, I set out to find a job. And uh, my dad had a connection with someone at the uh, Yale and Town lock shop on Main Street. And so I went over and saw that woman who managed that facility, and she put me in contact with uh, Raul Grisanti, who was running a, a couple of food facilities as a lessee at Disneyland. And um, lo and behold, uh, he hired me, and the first place I worked at was Aunt Jemima's Pancake House, a very <laughs> timely subject, obviously, in today's world. Yes, indeed. Very relevant. Yeah, but it was a great experience for me. And unfortunately, I guess I wasn't very good at, at pancake uh, management. So <laughs> they moved me over to, uh, I, was, I was there about two weeks, and then they needed some help over at the uh, Hills Brothers Coffee Shop, which was right on Main Street, right next to uh, the Kodak exhibit. And so that. That restaurant served coffee, obviously, and pastries, and then we also served sandwiches. And so there was a little kitchen, a little tiny kitchen where not more than two of us could work at a time. So I became a one of the cooks in the kitchen, and usually I had another colleague with me, and the two of us would... We had a little window and a, and a counter, and the gals, the waitresses, because it was all waitress service, would come up, place their orders, and and we'd fill them. And that was that was a great experience. I worked there for about a year and a half, on and off. So you were in the coffee shop, cooking in the coffee shop. Where do you where do you go from there? Well, I, I was, you know, I was a pretty efficient guy in using up my time. So <laughs> I got a. <laughs> The gal who uh, originally uh, helped me get this job, as I said, ran the Yellentown lock shop. And she had docents there who explained the exhibit. And Yellentown, the very famous lock manufacturing company. Sure. And they, uh, they had a long history. And uh, they also were the... Uh, provider of all the builder's hardware, locks, hinges, everything, door closers that Disneyland needed during the uh, construction. So as a part of that, they they sponsored this exhibit, which was the history of lock making and locks. And so the the shop was staffed by, as I said, a, a woman manager, and she had other young ladies who acted as docents. And sometime in the, um, I don't know, probably 61, she, um, or late 60s, early 61, in the winter, she came to me and she says, well, Disneyland's increasing the hours on certain days till 10 o'clock at night in the winter, and it's dark, and there aren't a lot of people around, and I'd like to have a, a man on, on staff who could handle that shift. So she sure. said, would you like a job? So I, sure. 
I'll take that job. <laughs> so I worked. I worked at the coffee shop. I even worked at uh, at the magic shop at one time. And I believe, although we didn't connect very well, there was a guy who printed the paper, the the Disneyland paper. You could have your name printed on the header, and he had a little printing press, and it was right in front of the magic shop. And so I got a job doing that for a while uh, as a a break. And at the same time, the comedian, who became very famous as a movie star. Sure. Uh, Steve Martin, right. Steve Martin. Steve Martin was there. I remember him. I, I met him, but really? wasn't a good friend. I wasn't a close friend of him. He was handling the magic stuff at the other end of the room, and I was out in the front by the front door trying to get people to buy newspapers with their name on it. So, that's, we overlapped that's remarkable. there for probably one summer. Um, and uh, so I did all of that. And one day, the manager says to me of the Yellow Town Shop, she says, uh, Chuck Hannaford from Disneyland came in the other day, and he's looking for a locksmith. And he thought that I might be able to direct him to some. Would you be interested in that job? (laughs) So I sort of thought about it for a minute and said, well, you know, I really don't know locksmithing. I know a lot about locks, but I don't know locksmithing (laughs) per se. Sounded like this was a pretty heavy job, and I was still going to school, so I didn't do anything about it. And about a week later, Chuck came back to the gal and said, where's that guy you were going to send over to me? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm need i really in trouble. I need, I need a locksmith. So the next day I came in to work, my shift, and she says, Chuck, you, you need to go talk to Chuck. So I went to talk to him, and he told me what he needed, and he didn't need a full-time person. He just needed some... He had inherited this function. He was in in the Disney operations, and he ran the parking lot as the main main supervisor of the parking lot, but he also inherited this whole thing of the locksmith because no one paid attention to the locks. And there were keys all over the place, and they need people to repair them and people to, you know, cut keys and fix the locks and all of that. So my dad had worked for, my dad obviously was a, he was a manager with Yale in town, and and he knew everything about locks. So I decided to take the job. (laughs) Chuck, Chuck interviewed me, said, fine, you're hired, start Monday. So... This was probably a Friday or a Saturday. I walked, I walked home to my, uh, and uh, saw my dad, and I said, "Hey, Dad, I just got a job as a locksmith. Now, can you <laughs> show me what I have to do?" <laughs> right. It's lucky you had a connection, because otherwise, it would have been, uh, it'd been a little more difficult, I guess. It's a very funny story. So you know, it's like, well, sure, I'm. You know, I'm not incapable of doing that job. I just need to learn a few tricks about it. So the first thing my dad, so my dad said, okay, fine. Let's go out to the garage. I've got a key cutting machine there. I'll show you how to cut a key. (laughs) The first thing I learned was to cut keys. And that was the biggest, one of the big priorities. And so 
I got I got by the first week by cutting keys. <laughs> then we had to change the tumblers on a lock and change locks out or to fit a certain key or whatever. So that's a little more complicated. So I go home and talk to my dad and we go out back out in the garage and he shows me how to take a a lock apart, lock set apart, change the tumblers and all of that. Well, anyway, I got to be really good at being able to open any desk drawer in operations at Disneyland with two um, paper clips. (laughs) <laughs> oh wow well that's a useful skill i was in high demand for a long time on that <laughs> but anyway that's how i got started and that's how i ended up in the operations division and at that point i became a disney employee right and you know people may people today may not understand or may not be familiar with the lessee system but these were outside companies that sort of leased space from disney for their shops and so those weren't you, when you work for Aunt Jemima, you weren't working for Disney. You were working for Quaker or whoever, correct? Yeah. I was working for, I think Ralph Grisani called his company Food Systems. And he managed, as I say, he managed the Aunt Jemimas for Quaker Oats. And he managed Hills Brothers Coffee Shop for Hills Brothers. And then I, I think he, he also had one other facility in Frontierland. And... Uh, I never worked there, but, but yes, and it all goes back to when Walt built Disneyland, he had to go to ABC for a loan, if, if you know the history there, and ABC gave him a loan, but along with ABC, they owned food operation, UPT, United Paramount Theaters, I think was the former name of that but it was UPT and it became owned by ABC and they had a they ran concessions and food operations and so they ran some of the early food services at Disneyland so they were let's see there were individual investors who ran certain shops um, oh, okay. at Disneyland the uh, the glass shop, which was uh, continued for a long time, ran by a couple of brothers. Uh, they had the glass cutting, the glass shops. Then there was uh, Bill Evans, who was an architect, uh, landscape architect for Disney and landscaped Disneyland and Walt Disney World. And, and he and his family ran a, a hat shop in Adventureland and a souvenir huh. shop there. So. There were a lot of different, you know, because Walt, first of all, there was the, he was trying to get capital investment, but then there was also, he didn't have the experience in running all these facilities. So they went to outside people to help staff a lot of these things. Eventually, by the late 60s, mid-60s, a lot of those leases were coming up. They they could have very well have been 10-year leases. And Walt, again, and the company wanting to be more in control of the uh, operations of these facilities, having consistent staffing, consistent quality, consistent costuming, and so forth, 
they began to absorb the operations and turn them all over to Disney operations or Disneyland Inc. operations. So eventually sure. all of these lessees were phased out over time. And certainly by Walt Disney World, uh, when we opened Walt Disney World, there were maybe three or four lessees left. The glass people, the balloon guy, uh, Just... a few others, you know, but by then we had our own uh, operating team that did all of that. And eventually the big, the last remaining thing, of course, was the Disneyland Hotel. And eventually we took over the Disneyland Hotel. And that was after we actually set up uh, a hotel company to run the hotels at Walt Disney World based on sure. the bad experience of having Disneyland's name on the Disneyland Hotel and Walt Disney getting all the complaint letters of the bad service at the hotel. (laughs) 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 Anyway, so So, a lot of evolutionary uh, management structures and ownership structures that uh, transition from the early days to what you see today. Right. And as you say, they were, they were kind of learned. Disney was learning how to do this from people who knew how to do it. And once they had that knowledge and had the capital to take over, they didn't need these people anymore. So if you understand the story of Disneyland's creation itself, Walt was not happy with the offerings that he had a choice of taking his daughters to for entertainment. So Mm -hmm. that, you know, he had better ideas on how to create a, a, even if you want to call it an amusement park at the time, you know, it became Disneyland. So he he continued to apply that same philosophy to everything else that he he was involved in related to the theme park, and he just wanted to improve it, to improve the quality, have a consistency of a of an operating vision that you know stood on quality and a high level of performance. And that's what these things did. You know, it wasn't so much learning the businesses, maintaining them to a standard that was consistent across the entire park. Sure, sure. Well, now you're officially Disney. You know, you're working in the lock shop. Where where do you go from there? Yeah, I'm, I'm working at Disney. I'm working um, in the lock shop during the day. Excuse me. In the, in the lock function at Disneyland during the day and then taking a dinner break and working at the lock shop at night in the summer times. So I'm working. Oh, wow. I think there was one summer there. I was probably working 80 hours a week at Disneyland. And uh, so the next thing that happens is I'm in the operations division, which was a tiny building at the time with all the ride supervisors and Dick Nunes' office was there. He was head of operations at the time. And Dick had a staff assistant. That was his title at the time uh, by the name of Ted Kroll. And Ted Kroll was an industrial engineer. And uh, apparently before I arrived early on, the management of, of Disneyland was very big on 
standards, operating standards, time and motion studies, and so forth. And they became a, a real fixture in the operations division. So when Dick Nunes took over as director of operations, Ted Kroll, you know, he picked Ted Kroll to be his staff assistant. And Ted would do all types of studies, starting with projecting attendance. Because in those days, labor costs obviously were, were key, and each supervisor of every land had to staff his land. But to staff his land properly, he needed to know what the attendance was. So one of the critical things that Ted did was estimate attendance by day for the park 365 mm. days a year. That was a critical thing. Ted also did a lot of other studies. He, as, as with the new operation, we were learning a lot about how the guests moved through the park and how people reacted. And so modifications were needed, a lot of it to queue line development, a lot of it to crowd control, a lot of it to the way people moved through the park. Unfortunately, at that time, or fortunately, all changes to the park had to be approved by the wet organization that <laughs> sure. was Walt's company up in, at that time, was Walt's own company uh, up in Burbank. So there was a process by which you had to prepare documents to convince WED that this change was necessary and you'd submit those to WED and they'd give you the approval and then Disneyland maintenance and construction would sort of make the changes, but it required WED's approval. So that was another big job. And then every summer time studies were done on every attraction. So we knew the theoretical capacity of every attraction and we do time and motion studies and we'd basically test the efficiency of the operation and obviously provided that information to the supervisor of, of the land so that he could make whatever changes were necessary to keep the efficiency up on the attraction. So make a long story short, uh, I... In my job in that building, I'd, I'd circulate and I'd know these people, but I became friendly with Ted Kroll's secretary, who was my age, <laughs> and young gal. And we'd go for coffee a lot because we were the youngest, I, I guess, in the office to some degree. And we'd go for coffee. And uh, one day she says to me, Ted's looking for an assistant. And he, he's, he's interviewing all these guys from you know, college graduates, she said, you could do this job. <laughs> she says, why don't you talk to Ted about it? And I said, okay, sounds good to me. Sure. Because now I'm, I, I'm about, uh, I, I, my major in school, I started out as an engineering major. And I decided after two years of basic engineering, it, it was a little boring for me. But I had all the basic skills, and I switched to business as a major. And but I stayed in the uh, 
what I call the operations research management side of business. Uh, and so I was taking, you know, industrial management courses and probability and statistical courses. So, you know, I, I sort of stayed in the same venue. So I interviewed with, I said, okay, you set an interview, talk to Ted, set up a time for me to go talk to him. So I talked with Ted and told him where I was and what I was doing. And Ted seemed to obviously think I have was a, a good choice. So the way I found out about my next opportunity was I'm at the water fountain in the building, <laughs> taking a sip of water. And Nick Nunes walks by and slaps me on the shoulder and said, white shirt and tie on Monday. <laughs> that's, that's how I realized I got the job. <laughs> and of course I almost broke my tooth when he slammed me down on the, <laughs> on the yeah, water fountain ticket. But anyway, um, so I left the, the locksmithing business and mm -hmm. went to work for Ted as his assistant on, as an industrial engineer. Well, I'd be uh, remiss at this point not to ask what you made of Dick Nunes at that time. What, what were your, what are your, some of your memories of him? Well, I'm sure you've, you dealt with him much over the years that followed, but, uh, what were some of those early impressions of Dick Nunes? Well, Dick was a very, Dick was a very dynamic guy. I mean, he, he, he was always enthusiastic. He was always pushing. He was always, you know, thinking of uh, the fact that he relied on someone like Ted and then eventually on me to supply him with whatever ammunition or advice that we could provide, I thought was is very positive. I mean, Dick, in my early years, was a great supporter and uh, and provided me with a lot of opportunities, so I always appreciated that, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Dick, absolutely. Dick, was a, Dick was a driver. He had a lot of things going. I mean, he had... He was very instrumental in bringing Van France or or utilizing Van France to develop a fantastic uh, training program. Sure, and yeah. And the whole university thing. I mean, uh, Dick was Dick was pretty good at knowing what was needed and how to how to get people into doing that for him and helping him. And, um, so from that standpoint, he was, he was a pretty good guy to work with. Um, that's good. And clearly good at picking out talent. I mean, you were a very young guy and to getting tapped out for, you know, a position of responsibility. It's interesting that Disney was such a fluid organization in that way that, you know, they could, you know, pick out young talent like that and really move them up through the ranks like that. Yeah, and and I had a skill that other people didn't have nearby, so they had a, you know, and Ted was getting overwhelmed. There were a couple special projects that were coming up that Ted was involved in, and one of them was uh, St. Louis Initiative, where Walt sure. looked at doing a theme park 
in the city of St. Louis at the request of, uh, I forget, someone to, someone in the city government in St. Louis had requested, and Ted was sort of involved in a lot of the analysis of that project. It was supposed to be located in the downtown section they were going to redevelop, and it was going to be right across or anchored at one end by the uh, the big uh, arch, the St. Louis Arch. This was before right. it was. So Ted was involved in that. He also involved in some other projects that were taking his time away from the aforementioned discussion projects that we had, you know, attendance projection and time and motion work. So I took over and did a lot of that stuff in, instead of him. And he went on to do some of these other analysis for, for, uh, for Dick and for the company. So. You mentioned that everything had to be run by WED, and I I just wondered if you could talk a little about the creative conflict between the operations in the park and WED. That's a sort of a built-in conflict. Sure. And it occurs because of real issues that sometimes happen. You know, one of the things I learned at WED when I went there, and I really learned this at Disney, and I... I carried it through my career is that I always told people at Disney, we did everything. We designed the project, we built the project and we operated the project. And when you build it and operate it, you learn how you screwed up somewhere <laughs> and you made the change. And that was a very important thread of the Disney organization is that what you perceive to work doesn't work necessarily all the time when you actually put it to use or to operation. So, you know, then you'd come out and make some change. Well, sometimes creative people have a pride of authorship and they don't want their work changed. I, I wouldn't say that was a consistent problem, but there were, there were one or two people who didn't think you needed to make the change. So you had to justify why you needed to make the change. And a lot of it was, as I mentioned, you know, Disney, Disney had a lot of park-like elements in the sense of planter areas and things of this nature. And, when people start walking through a planter area to get from one walkway to another, you got a problem. You either got a problem of replacing the plants because they're being chewed up every week, or you have to put a fence around it, which initially Disneyland was unwilling to do, or Walt, it wasn't designed that way, and they didn't want to put fences up. Fences right. were barriers. Or okay, you cut the planter into two pieces and you put a walkway through it. Right. So those are the some of the options that you could deal with. So, you know, you'd make a suggestion. Somebody else may have thought, well, you don't really need to do that. Or they had a better way to do the, the walkway. Or they said, well, why don't we just eliminate the whole front end of this planter where they're walking through and make a, Make more space there and 
cut the planter back. Well, you know, all of those things become expressions of some artistic design, and, you know, you have to work them out. Some people were willing to do that. Some people were more difficult about it, and you had to go back and figure out a different way to do it. Yeah, and then what happens is over the years, as the operating people get more knowledgeable about how to operate their facility, they they become designers. They think they know how to design it now. Right, (laughs) yes. And so then you get that side of the conflict where you got operating people telling designers, you know, how wide the doorway should be and which way it should face and all of that. And that creates conflicts with the designer architect. So anyway, it's part of the process. I don't think anybody got shot or hung or... (laughs) (laughs) No no one that you know of. It's a big brawling fights over it, but... uh, you know, they were they were difficult decisions sometimes that had to be made. So, right. I mean, the bigger decisions on those things were typically made between the design group and the finance group. And, you know, and, and there were some brutal battles over that when, when I was at WED and, and so forth. Interesting, interesting. Well, you know, let's talk about the fair because, you know, you went from Disneyland to the fair. How'd you wind up getting pulled into that? I had been working for Ted now for about a year and a half, I guess. And it was late summer, it's like August of 63. And Ted says to me one day, he says, "Um, when are you graduating? And I said, well, I'm graduating next spring, 64, you know, May. And uh, he said, can you graduate in January? (laughs) And I said, well, I don't know. I said, I'm pretty close. I'd have to check with my units to see how many units I've got. And so I said, I can do that. So I checked with the school, found out that if I took 16 units in the fall semester, which is the maximum you could take, I could graduate because I'd have the full number of units. Holy smokes. Yeah. So, I go back to Ted and I say, yeah, I can do that. And he says, okay. He says, we've got a job for you, but we can't, we're not going to tell you what it is until we know you can graduate. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You graduate and then we're going to give you a, you know, we're going to offer you a job of doing something. So, you know, that's no surprise to me. I mean, I just let it roll off my shoulders and said, okay, we know what we got to do. <laughs> so the fall semester of 63, I worked 35 hours a week at Disney and carried 16 units at the university, full load. Oh, and got to the point where at some point, and I can't remember now if it was late December, early January, because graduation was, I think, first week in February or something like that, or the semester ended. I, I can't quite remember that, but it was sometime in that time frame. And I, they finally told me what the job was because they, I, you know, I was doing fine and they trusted my judgment that I was doing fine. <laughs> I was going to get my degree. 
And um, so I um, found out what the job was. And the job was, see, all the, all the fair shows were designed by WED, but only Pepsi was operated by Disney because General Motors, excuse me, General Electric and um, General Electric, Ford, and the state Ford, of Illinois, yeah. those companies were going to run their own, their own attractions. And Disney was going to help train their people, but they ran them. But Pepsi said, we only want to sponsor the attraction and on behalf of UNICEF, so we want you to run it, Disney. So Dick was told or asked, sure he had a choice, that he was going to run the Pepsi-Cola Pavilion and that he was to, you know, think about how to get that done and get people organized to do that. So that, and then Dick's retort to that was, I'll do that, but I need to do the whole thing. So as Pepsi was a paid attraction, we had ticket sellers out front and ticket takers. And we also operated uh, two Pepsi-Cola stands where soft drinks were dispensed. And eventually we expanded, when we got there, we expanded it to handle, handle food and, and sandwiches because there was a demand. So we, we became a food vendor as well, besides okay. dispensing Pepsi. So Dick says, I'll do it, but I, I want to control everything. So all those functions have to be under my responsibility. So he, he, he got what he wanted. <laughs> he made his move. He looked around at his organization, and he didn't have anybody to handle cash control uh, and payroll operations and things of that nature, financial functions. He didn't have anybody. Sure. And so I don't know how they came about picking me. I, I'm guessing <laughs> Ted Kroll made the suggestion to Dick because he was probably helping Dick organize this unbeknownst to me. And then, so Ted probably suggested, well, Frank's getting out of school. Why not? He's got a business degree. He should be able to know how to count money <laughs> and, and do basic accounting. So they decided to send me to New York and I was supposed to be the number two guy because there was a fellow by the name of uh, Tony Virginia who was an accountant, a Disneyland accountant who was going to head up the office. This was a controller's job, we call it, controllers uh, of the Pepsi Pavilion where we sold tickets, counted money, and made the bank deposits and made the payroll for all the Disney guys working at the fair was the other thing we, our function was. And that brought me into contact with all the studio people that a good many of them became WED and MAPO employees shortly thereafter to deal with Walt Disney World. What happened, though, was that Tony Virginia, who was the accountant that was supposed to take over the job, had been in New York doing construction auditing. All the contractors were you know, hired by Disney to build all this stuff. And so Disney was managing the construction of those four pavilions. And Tony was doing the construction accounting 
And by the time the fair came to open and make the transition for him to move to be the controller of the Pepsi exhibit, he was so bogged down in change order discussions and negotiations and, (laughs) you know, all the claims and so forth that construction people can dump on you at the end of a job that he couldn't wrap up his work until the fair was literally finished for the first year. So (laughs) I got moved to number one. And of course, all the people that operated the Pepsi Pavilion, there were seven of us, were Disneyland employees and came from California. And then we locally hired everybody we needed. Did you have any problems with those guys? Well, in the end, really no. But the first problem we ran into was I wasn't going to leave that room. I was going to be close to that room that we counted the money in for the entire shift. And that meant a 16-hour day, seven days a week. So that was kind of impossible to do. Goodness gracious. Yes. But they needed to search for a somebody to relieve me. So they sent they sent me a person from the studio payroll department. Now he didn't know anything about cash control, but he knew the studio payroll. And it was, so from my perspective, it was just good to have somebody else there. So I only had to work twelve hours a day as he did. <laughs> and we could actually both get a day off maybe uh, a week. Well, I mean, I'm sure that was, you know, you were there at that pavilion a lot. Did you have any notable guests during your time there? I'm sure there were a lot of people coming in and out. Oh, God, there was all kinds of stuff happening, yeah. I mean, the first time I actually literally saw Walt up close, he was coming through, came through with a few people, Bob Brown, John Hench, or maybe Dick Irvine, I can't, they did a tour of the facilities. And he walked down the hallway past my cash control complex with the bars on the windows. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I got to see him and said hi. But uh, that was the first time I actually physically saw Walt, I think. Well, you have a funny story about uh, meeting him uh, that I think tells a lot about the way he saw the world. So I wondered if you could tell that story. Sure. I mean, people always ask me, when they find out I was an old Disney hand, did you ever work with Walt Disney? Did you know him? And I said, yes, I did. And I said, and they always say, well, what kind of a guy was he? Was he really that creative and so forth? And I always tell them this story and the story, I got to explain the reasoning that, that we had this chance meeting as it turned out. But in the, um, in the sixties, the U S mint could not, produce coins fast enough for consumption in the country. And there were pockets of coin shortages around around the United States. And they varied depending on location and which mint Philadelphia, Denver, San Francisco was turning out coins for you. So, mm. so and the reason it was important to us is because in those days, the ticket sellers had change machines that were mechanical change machines. Sure. Yeah. And you took the dollar bill or you took the $5 bill or the $10 bill and, and it added up all these 
pricings all all ending in five, you know, ninety five cents, right, <laughs> or seventy five cents or something like that. And you made and the ticket sellers would hit the buttons and the exact change would roll out. So every one of those coins in that machine, the coin slots needed to be filled correctly with the coins. So if you didn't have quarters, you had a problem. If you didn't have dimes, nickels, whatever, uh, it was an issue. And these were the standard machines that you went in those days. They used at the movie theater. Same thing. Right. So yeah. We had those in New York, and Disneyland had a slew of them in California. And one day I got a call from Carl Freeberg, who trained me uh, and helped me get through the first couple of weeks of the fair. And he said, Frank, he said, how are you doing for coins there? And I said, well, we're doing pretty good. I said, the bank here is supplying me with everything I need. Sometimes it's not wrapped, meaning counted and wrapped for but I said I've I've got my counting machine I've got the I've got the wrapping machine so you know it gives me a little extra work but I can I can typically supply my ticket sellers with the proper coins for the day and keep them in supplied. He says, well, we're having a heck of a problem in California finding nickels. We can't get enough nickels. Hmm. So he says, I've checked with the pilots. And at that time, Walt had bought a G1, a Grumman Gulfstream number one turboprop airplane. And it was the first of a long series of, of Grumman airplanes that served the, uh, you know, the uh, general aviation, but mainly corporate use. And this plane carried... Um, I think you could cram, if I remember the numbers right, 14 people on it, but ideally it was probably as passengers, 12 were were comfortable. And so Walt was sending people to the World's Fair almost on a weekly basis. He wanted all his design people, his manu- you know, all his key people. So he'd send them and their wives, typically, on a week's tour of the fair, and they'd fly in on the Gulf Stream, and then they'd fly home, and they'd bring another load in. So Carl says, I talked to the pilots, and he said, they're going to have a couple empty seats left on the plane going back on Friday or Saturday, and if you can get me some nickels, put them on that airplane, (laughs) then I'll pick them up in Burbank at the airport when they come in. So... Okay. Uh, easy. <laughs> well, I'm an industrial engineer, so I have to tell you the whole story on this thing, right? <laughs> so Carl wants Carl wants uh, $2,000 worth of nickels. Nickels come from the bank in bags of $200 worth. <laughs> Each bag weighs 40 pounds. Oh, good grief. So five bags is a thousand dollars and five bags weighs 200 pounds and 200 pounds is the allocated weight per seat on an aircraft all right there you go now you got two thousand pounds of nickel i mean two thousand dollars worth of nickels weighing 400 pounds are going to go and replace two people on the g1 going back to (laughs) california that's how it works right (laughs) okay so uh so I go ahead and do this, and, and this did not just happen one time. This happened, that was the first time, 
And this happened often, probably wow. five times when I was at the fair, probably, probably five, at least five times. And every time we did this, again, $2,000 in 1964 was a lot of money to me. So it was my sure. money, as I say, quote, my money until it got that plane got in the air. Then it was somebody else's money. But <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but it was your sure problem while you had I it. I personally got it to the airplane. <laughs> so I'd go to the bank or we'd have the bank deliver us the money. We'd load it into my station wagon and I'd drive down to LaGuardia and uh, they had a general aviation section and we'd drive over there and I'd take those nickels and with the pilot's help we we spread them around the airplane to balance the load properly but they all fit under the seat they're about the size of a oh i guess they were about maybe a bag was 12 by 12 by about four inches thick so that's 40 oh pounds and we'd spread them underneath yeah. the seats and, and like um, bootlegging or something and then i just stay there until the plane taxied away to take off because as Again, as I said, until that point, it was still my money. (laughs) Right. Anyway, so one morning, one Sunday morning, I had to do this. Turned out it was was one of my normal days off, but that's okay. (laughs) I had to do this. So I went down early in the morning. It was like bright, sunny day. It was summertime. And I was probably there, I don't know, had to be. 7 8 o'clock in the morning, maybe 8 o'clock. So I loaded up. You know, I saw the pilots. I knew them by now very well. We loaded up the plane, put the bags around, and then I'm standing right there on the tarmac, not far from the plane, just waiting for the passengers to show up. Well, I didn't realize it, but Walt was on the plane with Lily, Lily and Disney's wife, and, uh, and they... Walt always arrived early, so he was the first one there with Lillian. And they're waiting for the other passengers to arrive from their hotel. And um, Walt comes up and stands right next to me. And I look to my right, and I see it's Walt Disney, and I say, good morning, Walt. (laughs) And he said, good morning. He said, "Um, that plane over there, is that Frank Sinatra's plane? <laughs> I, I said I don't know. I said I wouldn't know whose plane that is. Yeah. So, you know, ten, fifteen seconds later, he says, "That plane over there is that the new P twenty three something?" <laughs> and I said, <laughs> and I look at the plane, and I can't figure out if it is or not because I know nothing about airplanes. So. Right. I said, well, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't know. And then in the, in, within three seconds, I said to myself, this guy's going to think I'm a real idiot. <laughs> 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 so I better explain to him that I don't work here. <laughs> and I know nothing about airplanes. <laughs> so I turned to Walt and I said, Walt, I'm sorry. I said, I, I know nothing about these aircraft. I said, I don't work here. I said, I work for you. <laughs> and he goes, oh. 
and I introduced myself at the time, right? I said, I'm Frank Stanek, and I work for you. And he said, well, what do you do? And he, I told him what I was doing. And, of course, in those days, even Walt Disney knew who Carl Freeberg was at Disneyland, you know. So, sure, yeah. Uh, it's such a small company. So I said, you know, I explained to him the problem and told him that I had just loaded $2,000 worth of nickels on the airplane and there's been this shortage and so forth. And that's why I'm here. I'm just waiting for everybody to arrive in the plane to leave. And then I'll go back to doing what I was doing. <laughs> and he listens to me tell this story. And he turns around and Lily's talking with the stewardess. At, and he says, Lily, come over here. Come over here. Meet Frank Stanek. <laughs> that Frank Stanek just put $200,000 of coins on the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he says, he says, and we're going to be flying over Vegas. And think about this. We are going to get attacked by air pirates over Vegas to get these coins. <laughs> sure. And I just listened to this and Lillian's listening and nodding and, and Walt is, has just run out a complete storyline of something, whether it's a movie, a television <laughs> show, but based on this, that little bit of information he got from me, he's now talking about air pirates attacking the Disney aircraft with $200,000 worth of coins on it <laughs> over Las Vegas. <laughs> so, and, I, and how does Lily react to that? She just like sort of smile and nod. very intently and, <laughs> But before she got a chance to even say anything, the pilots yelled over, Walt, we're ready to go. Everybody's on board. <laughs> so we said our goodbyes. But I can just see Walt on that aircraft regaling this to all the other passengers on the plane during the flight. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I could remember. Well, I think I remember one or two of the people, and I wish I could, but they're probably not around anymore. I wish I could have gotten the feedback on what Walt told them on that flight about the about the nickels. Yeah, I love that story. It just goes to show that, you know, 8.30 in the morning, his brain is always going, you know? Well, it's going, and it's, he's, he's got a very creative story that he, he picked up just from what I, you know, in my world was a mundane thing that we had to do, <laughs> we had to deal right. with. We had an issue and we dealt with it, but he made this into a whole kind of exciting story. I, I, I just love it. I think it's great. And so yeah, when people say, story. was he a creative guy? I, I always tell them that story. Yeah, this is exactly what happened. Make an adventure out of some bags of nickels. That's pretty good. Well, outside of your work experience, I know you were really busy, as you say, during the fair, but do you have any other favorite memories of the fair outside of your work experience? It was an exciting place to be. A lot of it's personal. I was, as I said, I, I grew up in Connecticut, and my folks particularly had fond memories of the 1938-39 World's Fair. And oh, a lot wow. of souvenirs, we had a lot of souvenirs in our house from that fair. And so to be back on the same site with this huge 
activity and a re- a, basically a redo of that fair. It was pretty interesting. I mean, it was there's a lot of work to be done and, and a lot of things to be involved in. I on on few occasions I was able to get out and see a lot of the attractions. One of the great I mean, I have a lot of stories. They were either personal or work related, but one of the great work related stories that came out of the fair for me was was the fact that we we have to go back to the nickel story again a little bit because there was a bank on site, First National City Bank in New York, and that was the fair's official bank. And all the less, all the people who operated there, the food concessionaires and so forth, got all their coin and needs from that bank and deposited money into that bank at the end of the day. And so it was a pretty big operation for this branch. And one day I get a call from the manager of the bank. And he said to me, you have a uh, CD here, a certificate of deposit for $3 million or something like that. Um, That's coming up for renewal. And do you think the company is going to renew it? And coincidentally, just prior to his call, I had gotten a call from the New York office of Disney. First of all, I didn't even know anything about the certificate of deposit, but I, got, I had just gotten a call <laughs> from the New York office of Disney asking for an account number to charge the interest to, or credit the interest to, from the CD. And so I gave it to him, and that's how I found out that we had a CD there. But in passing, the the manager that called me from New York said, we're, we're probably going to redo it. It was like a six-month term. So we're going to probably renew this. So when the manager of the bank called me and said, are you going to renew this? I said, well, I really don't know. It's out of my, you know, bailiwick here. <laughs> right. That's high level. Yeah. I said, that's being handled out of our New York office, but... I said, you know, I just had a conversation with them, and I think their intent is to renew it. And the next thing out of this guy's mouth was, what are you doing for lunch? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> I don't have anything special planned. <laughs> I was going to have my normal sandwich and Pepsi from the, <laughs> <laughs> right. from the concession from stand. The stand. Yeah. And, uh, so I said, you know, I don't, I don't have anything planned. I'm available. And he says, okay. He says, meet me at the gas pavilion. The gas pavilion had the best restaurant, the most high-end restaurant in the entire fair. <laughs> you know, table, table cloth, sit-down, waitress service, great menu, wine, all that stuff. It was the top top restaurant in the whole New York World's Fair at the time. So when we went to lunch, I finally realized why he was so excited about the news I gave him and why he invited me to lunch. And the reason was that most people banking with his branch at the World's Fair were from out of town, so to speak, especially the big concessionaires. And they were, you know, every night they'd bring their receipts into the bank and dump them into their 
account, but the bank became a counting house for them. So they had to count all those funds and they, you know, credit it to these companies' deposits and as deposits to their account. And then the next day, he finds that they've drawn all that money out of that account and sent it to their home bank, wherever they were, in Oshkosh or somewhere. So (laughs) the bank itself had no chance to earn any money from that. They were just a counting house. And so the idea that we were willing, Disney was willing as a company to keep $3 million there in a CD, this was a coup for this guy. At least he could have some good news that he'd have $3 million to try to figure out how to make some money on for the next six months. So it was a plus for them. The whole point I wanted to make about this, though, was the fact that it was Roy Disney's relationship with the banks that caused this to happen, because Roy was a fair-minded guy and had a good relationship with the banks. And he was willing, he understood how they worked, and he was willing to leave this $3 million there as a goodwill gesture, I mean, at, at the least, so they could, you know, maintain a good relationship. Yeah, I'm sure he dealt with them a long time. So you go from, did you go straight from the fair to WED? Yes. How'd that happen? What happened was, In 1965, when I went back to the fair, we were starting to hear these rumors about ski resorts and land purchases and so forth. Something big was going on, Mm. but nobody knew anything. And so sometime in, I think it was July, I got a call from the studio and they wanted me to do a projection of revenue from... Uh, the small world through the end of the fair. And they they said, we need it. I forget, they called me on Thursday or Friday and said, we need it in the mail, in the pouch on Monday. We had a pouch going from New York to California every at least once a week. It may have been more. But anyway, we need it in the pouch on Monday. We need it here in Burbank. So I said, okay. <laughs> Locked myself in the... Uh, in the office at, uh, we had a New York office. I went over to the New York office and so I could not be distracted by anything and worked through Saturday and I think probably worked a day and a half on it. So it could have been Friday afternoon, Saturday, got all this thing done, all hand calculated out on, you know, 13 columns. <laughs> Holy smokes. You know, accounting spreadsheet formats, right? All penciled in and, so I did the whole projection, sent it off, and I think I got a thank you note from the studio and said, thanks very much. It was very helpful. You did what we needed. But then another great, you don't know what's coming story. So early in August, I was off on Sunday, and so that was my day off. And... Uh, the second year, Bob Matheson was the manager of the of the operations at the fair. So Bob calls me at my apartment and said, I need to talk to you. Can you come down to the office? So I drive down there. It was probably 
one or two o'clock in the afternoon, and I drive down there to the World's Fair office, go in to see Bob, and Bob hands me an airline ticket, and he said, you got to go to California tomorrow morning? Here's your ticket. It's like you're in the CIA or something. You get your marching orders and you have to go. Right. And so here's the ticket. You're, you're on the whatever flight, 9 o'clock in the morning. And um, when, you get, when you get to uh, California, you go to, you go to the park, see Dick, and he'll tell you what's going to happen. <laughs> so, okay. I fly, I fly into L.A. It was a Monday, and it was the Monday after the Watts riots. So oh, the, the Watts riots were still going on but pretty much ending, and I'm flying into L.A., and I can see the smoke because we're flying right over Watts on the approach. And so I, could, I see the uh, smoke coming up. So I land, and I get to my folks' home in Anaheim, and the next morning on Tuesday, I, I show up at Dick's office first thing, and he says, I'm sorry, but you're now going to be working for WED. Hmm. He said... When you leave here, you're going to drive up to WID. You go see Mel Melton. And he said, this was not my choice, but Roy Disney himself called and said, they want you at, at WID to be involved, whatever they're doing there. Really? Yeah. Had you met Roy ever? Probably not. Probably not. But Mel Melton was an assistant treasurer. He was the one who asked for my spreadsheet for the information. And I had met Mel before. I met well Mel and Card Walker and a few people at the fair. And so although my it was sort of, you know, not a big deal. It was just in part of my working relationship when they were visiting and I had met them. But so Mel was being moved to become the president of WED because it was going through the whole reorganization to get ready for Walt Disney World. So they had to change WED from a family-owned Walt Disney company to a subsidiary of the studio. Oh, of course. Sure. So that's, that's what was happening. And one of the first tasks was to try to get the companies that sponsored the World's Fair attractions to Disneyland. So what they wanted me there for initially, because they liked my spreadsheet on projections and they knew my background, <laughs> they wanted me spreadsheet. to help forecast what attendance might be, among other things, for these attractions at Disneyland. And this whole effort was headquartered out of the studio, but I guess what I'm guessing is Mel Melton was happy with my performance on the spreadsheet, said something to Roy, we need we need some help, and Frank Stanek done a great job here, and whatever he told him, I have no idea, I'm making it up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. So that's how Dick got the call and said, we need Frank to join us here at WED. Well, of course, I get to WED and, you know, they had just moved into the Flower Street building, the uh, 
the cosmetics firm that they leased out the building that this cosmetics firm was in. And there was all kinds of activity going on. I mean, they were knocking down walls, building stuff, moving people in and out. There was still cosmetics in the warehouse. (laughs) I mean, it was Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It was like they had only been in this building maybe 30 days, if, if that much, when I showed up to work. (laughs) And, uh, so it was a pretty exciting time and, and everything just built from that whole time frame. I mean, I, I had to call my wife and I said, okay, I'm not coming back to New York. (laughs) 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 She was, she was working at General Electric. We got her a job at General Electric and she was the hostess there. So, uh, anyway, uh. I can't remember. I guess I did go back, but I'm not even sure I went back to help her move. I don't know. I don't remember now whether that actually Things happened. moved quickly in those days. I never did go days. back to the fair. I um, made arrangements for my number one guy that was helping me to, because he was back as well, so he knew the operation. We had to find him somebody to, to help him, so we got one of the ops guys to do that. And so they managed to make it through the end of the fair, which was another, you know, month and a half, basically, to go. But I always, I was always disappointed I'd never finished out the fair, so to speak. Right. You got, things moved quickly and you got moved on to the next assignment. Well, uh, what was, uh, you know, you mentioned Mel Melton, and that's a name that people probably don't know today, but was an influential person. Uh, what was what was he like? What was your take on him? Well, Mel was Mel was a good guy. I mean, Mel was a finance guy, and so when they formed what I call New Wed, they put Dick Irvine in charge of the creative. So he was executive VP, and he ran all the creative stuff. And Mel, being a finance guy, assistant treasurer, was made president to handle all the administrative functions for WED. So I don't know how much experience Mel had at the studio dealing with the creatives or the production facilities or whatever. I I just really don't know. So I can't comment on that. But obviously, one of his functions and particularly because we were undertaking, I mean, the whole reason this was occurring was because we were undertaking Walt Disney World, just the beginnings of it, and we had purchased all Mm -hmm. this land. So the whole design team and reason for New Wed was to, you know, realize that project. So Mel obviously was going to deal and watch over the costs and, you know, so he did his job to his ability and it it created, you know, it created a lot of friction between how much money should be spent, could be spent, why things cost so much <laughs> and all of that. Sure. It was, it was a tough time. I mean, I worked, I reported directly to Mel and at least my initial work didn't get me involved in any of that stuff. And all through the process. I provided what became known as a research and planning function, and most of it involved providing analysis and design criteria to designers, you know, 
for the business side, the operational side of the park and all of that. Again, back to attendance projections, capacities of certain things, all of that kind of stuff. We were uh, we were doing that, and so I had really no activity in the financial management of, of the project until one day I got a call from Mel. He said, I want you to take over this function that Price Waterhouse had been doing as an outside consultant. And the function was a management control system for the design and construction of Walt Disney World. Okay. And the bottom line, that came about because the company had gone out and borrowed tons of money from the banks to build Walt Disney World. And the bank basically said, we need to be assured that you can actually complete this project and open it. Yes, exactly. Right. When Mel calls me in and says, Price Waterhouse thinks they've done all they can do here and they've set the basic program up. They think it's best that somebody in-house take it over and run it, which I immediately read as they're giving up because they're not <laughs> realizing that they don't have the rapport credibility here. So at that point, it's primary creative thing. So I don't know zip about project management, and I don't, you know, I'm aware of it. I'm reading engineering news record and things like that, so I know what's going on. <laughs> but I, I have no skill in that, no prior knowledge of it. So I say to Mel, I say, can I think about this overnight? And I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you. I just want to think it through because I don't really have competency in this area. But what I was really telling him was, I don't want to get trapped in the middle of a shouting match between somebody who's supposed to meet a deadline and isn't meeting it. Mm, <laughs> yes, like indeed. That's existing and budgeting and financial issues. <laughs> so I go back to my office, and I was intrigued by the challenge. And I thought it would be a good thing to do, but I, I had this problem of not wanting to be reporting, not so much to Mel as a person, but being part of the, quote, administrative group, because I had much better rapport with the creative group, sure, and I didn't right. want to get into the middle of a difficult situation. So. I came up with a brilliant idea. I pick up the phone and I call Dick Irvine's secretary, Edie. I say, Edie, I need five minutes with Dick Irvine. I said, Dick, I said, can you, you know, can you work something out for me to see him? And Dick's pretty busy and I'm a low ranking guy. So I, you know, I don't want to take up his time. And she says, ah, oh, Frank, don't worry about it. We'll get you. I'll call you back and when he's ready, when he's got a minute. So she calls an hour later or so. I go down to Dick's office and I say to Dick Irvine, I said, um, Dick, Mel's just asked me to take over this whole management control program and lead it. And he said, yes. And I said, I've been thinking about it. And I said, um, now, as I understand the function of this program, it's to help you manage the design and construction. And he says, yes. 
So I got him to agree to that. <laughs> so I said to him, <laughs> right. okay, Dick, I said, I recognize the importance. I said, if this is supposed to be of assistance to you, then I will take the job only if I can report to you. I don't want to sure. report to Mel on this job. And he got a big smile on his face. <laughs> he said, okay, <laughs> he can report to me. <laughs> and then I, as soon as I got that, I said, okay, Dick, now will you call Mel and tell him what we decided? <laughs> <laughs> and I left. <laughs> and All taken care of. I didn't want to go to back to Mel and say, I'll take the job, but I'm reporting to Dick. I wanted Dick to <laughs> bring that yeah, up. Yeah, let him do they it, were, definitely. They were people of equals, right? <laughs> right. Well, what was the power dynamic between them? Because it seems interesting to me that it really seems like it was divided, like into the Walt side and the Roy side, and you know the specific people on each. You had Dick Irvine, then you had Mel. Uh, what was the power dynamic? You're right. I mean, they were, there there was that division because, again, if you look at Roy being the financial guy and and responsible, he's on the line with the banks. He's been working with his brother for so long. He knows how his brother-in-law, you know, can run through costs. So he wanted somebody in there that was going to be able to keep heard over the creative group and the creative group of course they're listening to Walt Walt wants the best thing and so forth and that costs a certain amount now the interesting thing about all of this is that this always got to be again it's sort of like the Disneyland operations guys in creative but it's the same situation you got competing priorities here between two groups of people and each one thinks their priority is the thing that has to be dealt with. And so what you need to do is you got to find compromise. But one thing I did learn through all of this is that the individual creative people understand this problem. Yes. And what their, their reply always is, is when you tell us to be creative, we're going to do our best job. But if you tell us you only have X number of dollars to spend or something like that, we understand the problem, and we'll, we can work to that to a certain degree, but we need to have that understanding. So when you talk to the individual guys, and, and you know this is probably an inherent problem that continues today in, in a creative organization like Disney, and, maybe, and certainly it was the same in Universal, it's resolvable, and you can you can get to it. But I remember we were, we had plans for Space Mountain, and uh, we were doing Space Mountain for Disneyland. And uh, I remember there was brutal fights over that. Oh, really? Just about costs? Yeah, it was, a, it was an eleven million dollar project, and the first estimates came in at fourteen, and it was a knockdown, dragout fight between whether the finance group was going to let us actually spend that much. It's it's always fascinating to me that they were thinking about Space Mountain so long before it was actually built, but uh, they they wanted to do it. They knew they wanted to do it. They knew they wanted to do it because the Matterhorn was so popular, but the Matterhorn was a, a very expensive 
maintenance problem because it's not a 100% gravity ride. It has booster motors in throughout the ride system to keep the vehicles moving. And so the whole idea behind Space Mountain was that it was a 100% gravity drop. You can maintain the ride vehicle moving in a constant speed through the attraction just by gravity. Uh, you may have, you may have needed some braking, but the whole point was there was no propulsion, additional propulsion needed to keep the vehicle moving. In the Matterhorn, because it was forced into a mountain that was pre-designed <laughs> by a bigger designer, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was forced in there to get the vehicle through certain portions of it. You had to have booster motors to speed it up and keep it moving at a constant rate. Okay, so sure, it yeah. required a lot of maintenance. And in some ways, you know, there were some, I, I don't know if we ever had any serious accidents, but, you know, you, you'd get cars potentially spaced too close together on that attraction okay. at times. So that was a, that was a problem. So, well, I would imagine it since it had been it was really the first of its kind of that kind of attraction. So I'm sure they were just feeling their way through it. Sure, yeah. and and the yeah. Space Mountain thing was a gravity ride, so that required a different kind of a track. And then once you designed the track, what do you cover it with? And the cover became Space Mountain, basically. Right. Right, yeah, and eventually they were able to do it. John Zovich, I think, I know John Zovich worked on that. He may have actually been hired to focus on that attraction alone. Cause he was, oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, That's he was the engineer on that, that attraction. I remember meeting John early on as the engineer on that attraction at, at WED. Yeah. Well, around this time, you know, you were starting on Disney World, but also, did you have any involvement in Mineral King? Oh, definitely. What What was your involvement with that? I don't know how I first got into that, but Bob Hicks, who had came out of VRA, may have done some of the original work on feasibility for Mineral King. So he was at the studio at that time, and he was sort of the project manager. And he worked the Mineral King project from the studio and probably reported to Card Walker on it because, you know, at some point when Walt passed away, then Card took that over. And I got brought into it for, again, from from the, what I would call the design planning criteria kind of point of it. And eventually worked very closely with Bob as his sort of liaison, or I don't think we used the term project manager in those days, but I was the point guy at WED with the wed work on the project and interface with Bob. And, you know, that project, a lot of it was government negotiations and so forth. And I know Bob and I made a couple trips together to Washington, D.C. for meetings with the Interior Department. And, um, oh, really? Yeah. And so, yeah, what happened was that that Mineral King was under the jurisdiction of the Department of Forestry 
and agriculture, I guess, at the time, that the parks department was a separate function. So all the, most of the land the government owns is under the jurisdiction of the forestry and ag department. And they may have a different name for it at the time. I don't remember now. But the interior department handled the parks. They only dealt with the national, the designated national park. So this land was on forestry land. And the way the environmentalists stopped it was to get that land annexed into the Sequoia National Park. <laughs> so right. Of course. Yes. Under a different jurisdiction. I was on that project forever until we dropped it. And then we located land called Lake Independence, eventually, up in Northern California, out of Truckee. Of course, that went nowhere either, that project, although we did a lot more work on it, I think, than we did on Mineral King. Really? Because you don't hear as much about the Independence Project as you do about Mineral King, and it it's interesting to me that it, you had done more work on it. And I, what what happened to that? I, I know what happened to Mineral King, but what happened to Independence? Because it seemed like it sort of peters out. Same problem. By then, uh, Governor Brown Jr., again, yes. another environmentalist, they wouldn't, they, they wouldn't give permission. The land was owned by um, a power company out of Nevada, out of Reno. It was a checkerboard piece of property. The power company had one piece, one checkerboard square, and next to it was a forest land square. And again, it covered this entire large, I don't know, 5,000 acres of land or something like that. And it was, had a big lake on it, the name Lake Independence. The, the, the ski mountain was not as good as Mineral King because Mineral King had a higher elevation and, and longer drop. But this was a great family resort and had more summertime potential. And both of them were killed because of environmental issues at the time. And that always seemed like such a shame to me because just in the plans, I've seen more of the plans of Mineral King than I have of Lake Independence. But it seems like they were very designed with the environment in mind. Even at such an early time in the environmental movement, it seemed like that was considered in their design. Oh, we did all of that stuff. I mean, if you think about Walt Disney World, which even predates the environmental movement or just starting. I mean, we, the things we did at Walt Disney World and studied and so forth, a lot of things we did in Orlando were, you know, dealt with the environment. And, and a lot of that came from, you know, think about it, the, just the idea of landscaping that started with Disneyland, but then in Florida we built our own, you know, grew our own plants, introduced a whole bunch of things. Bill Evans, you know, was always a great landscaper and environmentalist at the same time. I mean, so it all yes. went hand in hand. I'd be curious what your reaction to when you first heard of the Walt Disney World project, just kind of as a, you know, not as the, the not as far as the data, but just kind of the creative side. I mean, I almost heard about it and got involved in it at the same time, right? Because <laughs> I, as soon as I got to WED, that was a part of the planning. And the part of the planning 
that was going on at that time was big picture bubble diagrams of where things should be on this piece of property. And Marvin Davis was the driver of that. Walt would discuss with Marvin Davis all the things that were that he wanted to do and how do we place them on this property. And a lot of discussions, early discussions, were locational aspects of, of the project, of different elements, both initial and future, because we had to sort of lay out the whole thing. So Marvin Davis was responsible for that. And just being there, I mean, wet at the time when I joined was less than 100 people, right? So it, it was easy to get to know everybody, and everybody was really friendly. So somehow Marvin and I got connected very early on. And Marvin was what I would call a curious guy. He asked a lot of questions. I mean, so he'd be working on a problem, and he's pretty much working alone with sole direction from Wall, right? So Marvin's trying to figure out how you develop a big piece of land. I don't think Marvin was a land developer. I don't think he was a... Uh, you know, a civil engineer. He was a creative guy that was given this project from Wall. And so we we found it easy to engage in a dialogue. And he'd often, I mean, I probably, at some point within less than six months of being a wed, I was probably in his office two or three times a day, kicking ideas around on what he was working on, only because he had some questions and I might have some ideas or at least I had input or he, he needed some information that I could supply him. So how I, it was my job to find it for him. So anyway, so, I mean, it was a massive undertaking. It was just a massive undertaking. You know, the, the great thing about it was, and I always like to tell people this, as long as I worked at WED or the design group, I never heard anybody say, we can't do that. <laughs> never heard that once. <laughs> you know, so everybody was focused on no matter how big the problem was, what is the solution? How do you make it work? And I think a lot of that probably came from, you know, their training at the studio, because most of those people at that time came from there and, and they knew what Walt wanted. They knew he wouldn't be happy if he didn't get it, or he wouldn't be satisfied until he got it. So nobody felt that nothing was uh, accomplishable. They, they could do anything. It just took some time. That's all. So that wraps up the first part of our interview with Frank Stanick. Uh, We'll be back soon with part two of this interview with a lot more insights into uh, Walt Disney World and Tokyo Disneyland and beyond, and especially some fascinating stuff about Ron Miller and the transition to Eisner and Wells. Uh, Jeff, any final thoughts on the chat we had? Well, it's just heating up for me. I mean, when we get to Walt Disney World, it is stuff that I've always wanted to know, but even to get a view into Disneyland and the world's fair is 
is pretty incredible. And, and Frank is such a generous guy with his time, like I said, but you can tell that he is getting plugged into all these situations because he is a curious guy and it just seems like an amazing career to me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And a guy who was really always on the cutting edge, uh, I mean, continues to be, uh, he's still very active uh, on the cutting edge of, you know, the industry and the way to think about projects and things like that. So a very interesting guy. And, uh, you know, I can't get enough of his stories. And I really, again, thank him for being so generous with his time. And as I said, we'll have more from him in the future. So look forward to that. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Progress City USA. And uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on our interview and any more thoughts about what you'd like to see in the future, what you'd like to hear about in the future, maybe who you'd like to hear from in the future. It is podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. So we'll see you next time with more from Frank Stanek. And thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.